sermons can be especially memorable. I was reminded this morning of an old friend and mentor of mine, Dr. Arthur Curry, and of the sermon that he preached at the end of his year as moderator. And I can't remember the text, but I can remember him with his wonderful, his wonderful engaging voice that was just so smooth, talking about finding God in the deep darkness. But it was another sermon that I heard years ago that prompted me this week to turn towards Psalm 91. And it was a sermon by Fred Craddock, who was one of the great preachers of the 20th century. I, I was privileged to hear Fred Craddock live three times, first at my graduation from Knox College, and second in a seminar in Kitchener, Ontario, and then at a gathering in Washington, D.C. Now, Craddock was short, with a high-pitched nasal voice and a Tennessee accent that got thicker as he preached, especially when he told stories. He was an accomplished scholar in New Testament and homiletics. His preaching vocabulary came from his roots, and it was suited to the little country church he often preached in. Lovely name, Cherry Log Christian Church. He didn't change a word when he preached to a thousand with seven or eight hundred preachers in that mix. So last week I listened to a recording of that sermon from 15 years ago. And as I listened, I could actually see him in that high pulpit standing on a box. He traveled with a box so he could see and be seen. And I was spellbound. I was just as engaged, spellbound, as I was in 2004. I also felt that he was speaking directly to me, as he did 15 years ago. So I hear Fred Craddock's voice every time I read Psalm 91. And the text for Craddock's sermon that day, that evening in 2004, was Psalm 91, verses 5 and 6. You will not fear the terror of the night, or the arrow that flies by day, or the pestilence that stalks in darkness, or the destruction that wastes at noonday. This sermon owes a lot to that sermon. Even if I hadn't listened to it again, I would have written under its influence. The stories I'm about to tell are mine, though, but I remember them because I remember Craddock's stories. You will not fear the terror of the night. When Fred Craddock was a young boy, he contracted malaria. So night terrors, fever dreams, tormented him. And I had bad dreams too, seven, eight, nine years old. Many nights I was afraid to go to sleep. As long as I could see the glow around the blind in my window that came from the street light outside, I was all right. So I knew what Craddock called terrors of the night that stir in the darkness. For a few years, I walked in my sleep. 
And my mother usually found me downstairs in the kitchen, sometimes dressed for school, sitting there waiting for my breakfast. And she would gently lead me upstairs and back to bed. But I remember one night that I woke up before she got to me. The kitchen was filled with horrors. Things were moving. In my little boy's eyes, the, the front-loading washing machine looked like the Daleks from early, early seasons of Doctor Who. I was frozen in fear, and I screamed. My father had night terrors, and I've had them too. Janet tells me I still cry out in the night sometimes. I don't remember, but believe me, she does. It must be something about the men in our family. Stories that adults and bigger kids tell us about evil and demons that move in the night, even some of the stories we hear in Sunday school about a violent, vengeful God spreading death across Egypt at night. We know the terror of the night. In ancient times, in biblical times, people believed darkness was dangerous. Night was when spirits visited. Angels, sometimes, but mostly messengers from another realm whispering evil. People also believed that God spoke to them in dreams. Jacob, the prophets, Joseph, the Magi. But what did that belief that God spoke to them in dreams mean when they had nightmares? You need not fear the terror of the night or the pestilence that stalks in darkness. Well, as I grew up, I figured out that it wasn't so much night or darkness itself that scared me. It was being alone in the dark. And when we're half asleep or fighting sleep or begging for sleep in the dark alone, we're helpless. Jessie lived alone. She went out when she had to. She went to church almost every Sunday. And I was one of the few people she would let into her small apartment. She lived on her living room couch, day and night. She didn't sleep in her bed. The bedroom was too dark at night. And she was afraid of dying alone in that room. If she stayed close to the door of her apartment, maybe she could call for help. And she left it unlocked at night. She would doze and wake, doze and wake through the night. And her television was on all night, her only companion. And when her eyes opened, sometimes she saw terrible things on the screen that haunted her. She asked me to interpret those frightening night visions. But sometimes she woke and she saw the faces of angels on that television. Children who helped her settle back into sleep. And she told me, not long before she died, that she wanted donations in her memory to go to a children's charity because her nighttime angels were the kids shown on the charity's infomercial that played over and over every night. When we open our eyes suddenly alone in the dark, we're disoriented, vulnerable. But can we remember in those times when we are afraid 
when we are most vulnerable? Can we remember that we are actually closer to God than we are in the bright light of day when we're fully awake and in control? When I remember that, I rediscover prayer in times of wakefulness when every concern, every worry, every fear is hanging over my bed and the darkness doesn't hide it, I can be really honest with God. Can we remember the words from Psalm 139? If I say, surely the darkness will cover me and the light around me become night, even the darkness is not dark to God. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light to God. God dwells in darkness and in the light. You will not fear the terror of the night. Well, what about the destruction that wastes at noonday? Now, Fred Craddock said that when he started out preaching, like most preachers, he skipped the phrases he couldn't explain. And so he ignored the destruction that wastes at noonday. But when he took on this text, after many years of life experience, he figured it out. First, he said the word for destruction also means demon. And then he discovered something called the noonday demon. He had to reach back through 1,600 years of church history to find out where it came from, the noonday demon. The desert mothers and fathers in Syria and in Egypt were the first Christians to choose a monastic life. They left the world behind and went to the desert, like Jesus did, to pray and work and live a disciplined life. They knew the Psalms by heart, and the words of Psalm 91 came to one of the monks because they described something he struggled with every day. The demon that destroys at noonday, when the sun is highest in the sky, when there's no shade, no shadows, the temperature in the desert begins to soar. Nothing moves. It's like time has stopped. And so it was easy to ask in those midday moments if his morning's prayer, study, and work were really worth the effort. Did he really want to spend the afternoon doing the same things he had done in the morning, did yesterday, and would do tomorrow? It's not boredom, it's deeper than that. The desert monastics compiled a list of temptations they faced every day. They came up with eight temptations. They called them eight deadly thoughts. Somewhere along the way that got whittled down to seven deadly sins, and the noonday demon got left out. They called the noonday demon acedia, which is a Greek way of saying, I don't care. And some people associate procrastination with acedia. I don't really want to do what I'm supposed to do now. I'll do it later. But later, when? Is it really all that important? Oh, I don't care. For me, it's doing my taxes every year. Why rush? Why bother? They'll find a mistake I made, and 
they'll question something and I'll have to fill out another form and send them a whack of paper. So why rush? When I was in my 30s, fighting a losing battle with acedia, my doctor told me I was having a midlife crisis in my 30s. Well, if that's what it was, I've had at least two more since then. At least three noondays, struggling with the noonday demon. And often in that in-between time, at the noonday of our lives, when we've established ourselves at work, maybe we have families at home, all reasonably healthy and connected, but we have all the relationships and all the stuff we need and more. You know, the, the mortgage is gone or the end of it is in sight. Retirement is still over the next hill or two, but we've started planning for it. Acedia gets in our way. And it tempts us to believe that what we have isn't enough. What is isn't right for us. Love isn't real because the thrill is gone. We don't feel it right now. Maybe it isn't enough, isn't right. Maybe the love is gone. Acedia whispers to us, so why care? There's nothing you can do about it. Even though you know you can do something about it. Craddock says when Acedia takes hold and we name what we feel, well, demons run away when they're named. Life can begin again. Set aside all the stuff we've been using to try to fill the void that we imagine is there. Stop thinking we can recover our passion for life through one thing or another. When they wanted to leave to try something else, live a different life, the desert fathers and mothers were told, go back to your cell, your hut, your room. Everything you need is there. Can we practice being present where we are now? We may have to push ourselves, but it's possible, you know, to count all the things that are right, that are good in our lives, and practice gratitude for what is. And that includes gratitude for the strength and the resources to live through what's hurting, those things that we simply can't say are right or good for us. God is with us where we are now, in the now. And Craddock said, God can exercise the demon of Acedia. You will not fear the terror of the night or the demon that wastes at noonday. Now, we don't have to believe in literal demons or a personal tempter to recognize the things that test us and tempt us and frighten us, whether they come from deep within us or from outside. We know that many of today's demons ride in on our Wi-Fi. We begin Lent with the story of Jesus tempted in the wilderness, driven there by the Spirit so he could face one of human life's harsh realities before setting out on his mission. Lent can be a time for us to turn toward our fears, to risk spending some time in darkness, 
to name our demons, or whatever you may call them, and to admit, as Jesus discovered, that getting on the path or getting back on the path that we know we're supposed to follow and sticking with it isn't easy. Amen.